0: Hi! Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Yoga Girl podcast, Conversations from the Heart. I am so excited to introduce this week's guest on the show, Gretchen Rubin, a five-time New York Times bestselling author, superstar podcaster, speaker, and leading expert on habits, happiness, and human nature. She's here with us today to talk about how we can stick to healthy habits and how to truly make 2020 a happier year. Welcome to the show, Gretchen. Hello, I'm so
1: happy to be talking to you.
0: (laughs) I am so happy to talk to you. I feel like it's so serendipitous that we're recording this today because I I read your book, The Happiness Project, but years, years ago, did you just you just had the 10 year anniversary? Is that true?
1: Yes, I did. That was exciting. Yeah
0: congratulations that's really big but it was it was so long ago that I read it and then it being January and everything I've been cleaning out my house oh yeah and I found your book at the very top shelf because it was a long time ago that I read it and I started rereading it and then we booked this podcast and I just feel like I'm very much in your energy right now and I'm so happy that you're here (laughs) so for anyone listening who maybe is totally new to the world of Gretchen, could you tell us a little bit about the history and sort of the philosophy of the happier movement?
1: Yeah, so I, as you said, 10 years ago, I wrote a book called The Happiness Project, which was an experiment that I did to see if I could make myself happier. I realized, you know, what do I want from life anyway? I thought, well, I want to be happier. And I realized that I didn't spend any time thinking about whether I was happy. Or what could I do that to make myself happier? So I decided that I would spend a year because a year felt long enough that I could have real change, but not so long that it felt limitless. And I divided the year into 12 themes a month for every theme. And I thought about the areas where I thought I could be happier. So like January was energy because I thought, well, if I have more energy, then all the other things will be easier. And then there were, you know, friendship and family and work and leisure and reading and all kinds of things. And then within each month, I found a handful of concrete, manageable resolutions to follow to see if I could make myself happier. So I was using myself as a guinea pig. And after that book came out, I just, I just, I was so enthralled and continue to be enthralled with the subject of happiness. And that led me to good habits, because a lot of times when we're trying to make ourselves happier, we're trying to adopt a habit. Like, We're trying to have a regular yoga practice, or we're trying to meditate every day. And we think, I know it makes me happier, so why am I not sticking to it? So that got me really interested in habits, which I wrote the book better than before. And then that led me to my book, The Four Tendencies, which is about a personality profile that I realized, which is really at the heart of why people... Form habits in a certain way, or do certain things, or struggle to do certain things. Whether they're an upholder, a questioner, a blighter, a rebel, and then I wrote a little book recently, just like a fun little book about outer order, inner calm. Because one of the like little things that I'd noticed in happiness is why is it that getting outer order for so many people gives them such a huge boost? It's like it's not a big deal to clean out your closet, and yet it makes people just feel. Like they can change the world. Like a friend of mine said, "I finally cleaned out my fridge, and now I know I can switch careers." And I thought, <laughs> I know exactly how that feels like. And alongside the books, I also have a podcast, like you mentioned, "Happier with Gretchen Rubin," where I talk about all these ideas um, in the podcast form. I think I think it's it's so funny that that quote about. Uh, I
0: can change careers because I, yeah. up my fridge. <laughs> I know that feeling yeah. so well. Yeah. Even just a drawer, yes. like emptying the contents of that messy drawer in your house and then cleaning that out, it, it makes you feel like you can take over the world. Why is that? Have you done enough research that you feel close to that answer? Why does cleaning out or creating outer order, why does that give us such a
1: boost? Well, one of the things, first I want, I want to say most people feel this way, but not everybody feels this way. There really are people who oh, okay. are truly clutter blind <laughs> and they don't, you know, they don't care. They'll live in piles of unopened mail And all the kitchen cabinet drawers are open My sister Elizabeth is like this They don't care But for most people, like you and me Outer order does contribute to inner calm I, You know, I think there's a lot of things I think part of it is that Our surroundings do affect the way we feel And when we feel like our surroundings are in order We feel like ourselves are more in order Especially things like the kitchen Which feels very personal Or like making your bed in the morning There's something that when you walk into your 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 bedroom at night and the bed is made you just feel like you're more like like your world just makes more sense even though that's kind of irrational um and then of course it's just a lot easier to move through your day if you're not looking for your keys or you know you can't put a t-shirt back in the drawer because it's so jammed full of t-shirts that you never wear and and we also we project our identity into our environment and so if you if your place is really messy you might feel embarrassed to have people over so you don't have you know you don't see friends as much or maybe you feel really uh, uncomfortable if like you have to have an emergency repair done like on your kitchen sink and somebody has to come into your house and see what it looks like it can might can make us feel bad if we feel like it doesn't put out the identity into the world that we want to present to the world or that we want to be to ourselves cuz we see it too
0: but so why are we so messy? I think this is so so fascinating. I'm, I'm married to, a, a, okay, I don't want to say hoarder because I know there's, mm. there's levels to that, yeah. but my husband literally will not let go of anything. So mm. I, I continuously have to throw away, give away, clear out things without his knowledge. And he mm. never asks again. It's like I've thrown away so many things over the years. He doesn't even know, he never cares about that object. But if I ask, hey, you haven't used this for five, in five years, And he goes, no, 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 one day, one day we're going to live this life where I'm going to use all of these gadgets. You know, why are we, to different degrees, so, so messy? Why is it so hard to let go of stuff?
1: Well, you know, I think there's a lot of reasons for that. That's so fascinating about your husband. Do you feel like he's one of these people who wants to be prepared for anything? Like, Maybe, maybe there'll be a snowstorm one day and then we would need that. I mean, is is it that he wants to be prepared for every eventuality or like maybe he hates buying things weirdly? Like some people are underbuyers, like I'm an underbuyer. People don't like to buy things. So in a weird way, they don't like to let go of anything because then they, if they let go of it and then they would need it, then they would have to go out and buy it and they don't want to do it. So they never want to let go of anything. Or do you feel like he was raised in a household where there was a lot of emphasis placed on using everything up? Where, where do you think it comes from? Because that I don't think most people are like that.
0: No, I think it's, it's a combination of this idea that one day, you know, his lifestyle will be different, sort yes. of. Like, you know, you have this version of, because he's, he's kind of like, a, especially with sports, he'll throw himself into something like free diving. Yes. And then for a year, he's so into free diving, he gets all the gadgets and all the stuff, you know, and then he abandons it. And he d- goes over to now he's doing Ironman yes. and he's biking and he's swimming. And then he has this idea that one day he'll be a free diver again. So he will need all this stuff. Even when I say, hey, you stopped, you know, playing beach tennis or whatever. That was a decade ago. Right. <laughs> that was a long time ago. So it's almost, I think, like letting go of this version of yourself, you know, it becomes part of your identity that, oh, I used to be that yes. kind of person who did that.
1: Yes. No, it's and I- so intimate. No, I think that you put your finger right on it, which is the sense of identity, and that it's like as long as the stuff is there, then that then that identity is still active and that that possibility is still present, whereas it might feel very sad to let go of an identity or to admit that it's over. Sometimes it can be helpful to think, I'm not using this right now. I'm going to let this thing go out into the world where somebody else can use it right now because this thing should be used. And a lot of things kind of, lose their value like it's a wetsuit that it's going to kind of the the fabric isn't going to stay good or the technology is changing very fast and so no one's going to want to use this in 10 years they this should this thing should be used now so that it can be used productively and then if i need it again i'll get the latest gadget i'll get the latest version because if i wanted to get back into freediving i'm going to want to get whatever the equipment is that people are using now because the idea that like put that stuff to use now so that it can be used well, sometimes for that kind of person it will help. Because then they're not denying the identity; they're not saying you don't need it anymore. They're saying you don't need it right now, and so why not let you, somebody else use it right now? And then you can get new stuff when you need it. Because maybe you'll you need, need it. it if yeah, maybe. <laughs> and then he never and yeah, then but if I... he never does. Then he never does. But it's like the stuff right. Wrong.
0: I know. And it's so and I don't want to pretend like I'm the, the the most ordered person in the world. I'm definitely not. But I do really enjoy the process of of keeping a clear space. Yes. And when I was I was reading your book just now, Outer Order, Inner Calm. And it struck me that I, I have this yoga space, you know, in our house that I keep completely clutter free. You know, mm. it's so clean and minimalistic and simple just because that brings me peace. But then I go to the rest of my house where, of course, I spend the majority of my time and there's stuff everywhere. I mean, there's toys and clothes and gadgets and kitchen and, you know, it's just and it just struck me how almost hilarious it is that for this little piece of my life, it's like here you can have peace and then the rest, it's a mess. Do you have any advice for anyone who might be just like that, that, you know, looking for peace everywhere, but then somehow it feels like it's a limiting, (laughs) it's like this limiting part of our lives somehow. How can we create more peace in our outer world everywhere?
1: Well, well, part of it is you've got a really young child and young children are like they will, they grow out of that. But you are in a kind of a season of stuff with your young child. But here's the thing. It sounds like you and your husband thrive in different environments and so it's not that one of you is right and one of you is wrong. It's not better to live in like uh, uh, with very little things, and it's not better to live in a crowded environment. Like I call, I talk about simplicity lovers and abundance lovers. So simplicity lovers are people like you and me. We like bare surfaces and maybe not that much on the walls, and there's not a lot going on, and there's like a lot of beautiful emptiness. And that's how we thrive. But then other people, they like a lot of stuff going on. They like piles of stuff. They like collections. They like profusion. They like abundance. They like, you know, a lot of visual stimulation. And it sounds to me like your husband is an abundance lover and you're a simplicity lover. And it's not that he should learn to be the way you are or that you should have to put up with what he wants. It's the question of like, well, how do we have an environment where we both can feel comfortable? So you have your place where it's completely simple and that's a wonderful refuge, but it sounds like you're yearning for a little bit less abundance and profusion in other parts of your household. So maybe there's a way you could create more outer order in those common spaces. Like maybe he could have a room where he can have all his stuff any way he wants it. And you just shut the door and don't go in there. If you have a big enough house, I don't know. Or maybe you could say something like, well, in the kitchen, it really, I I really wish we could have clear counters. I just feel like someplace I don't care about like having toys out or, you know, in this room it's okay. But like in this room, I would really like if we could do these specific things and really point to specific things. Like I really feel much more comfortable when all the cabinet doors are closed and the drawers are closed. Or I really like when there's just nothing on the kitchen table except for what we're using to eat. And like, a bowl of oranges, or I don't like, you know, can we keep the mail out of sight, or, or whatever it is that's sort of particularly bothering you, to just, sort or like, can we all agree to put our clothes away, or whatever it is that's kind of like bringing you down, and explain, and, and it's, and again, it's not like you're right, and he should do what you say because you're correct, it's that this is what you prefer, and You know, and then and then you probably are because it sounds like you're you're already putting up with a lot more visual noise than you like. So the question is, can you bring it more into something that works for both of you? Right. Right.
0: Yeah. And I love how you share that in the book also, that it's such a personal yeah. process, because I feel a lot of these movements of, of decluttering, it's almost like an all or nothing yes. kind of thing. I, yes. I tried the Marie Kondo way and yeah. she's so, so sweet and I liked her book too. But at the end of it, I felt like I failed because I felt like it's supposed to be this way. I'm supposed to be minimalistic. I'm supposed to get rid of more,
1: Yeah,
0: you know, and then I didn't. Yeah. And I like your way of, okay, it's very personal. So for my husband, it's different. Yeah. And, you know, for me, it's different. And for someone else, maybe it's totally minimalistic. But then yes. we can all find our own our own way to show what outer order means to yes, us. Yes,
1: exactly. I think that's, that's so true, is that it, for each person, you kind of have to find what's that right place for you. Or if you're living with other people, you have to say, like, how do we find something? How do we all kind of meet where... Where it all works, yeah. I whenever people say like this is the way to do it, I'm like meow mm, yeah, because you like, do it first thing in the morning. I'm like yeah. Some people like to do it at night. Some people like to do it alone. Some <laughs> people need a friend. I have I'm constantly trying to get my friends to let me come over and help them clean their closets because I love to do it. And some people really can do it much better when there's somebody there keeping their com- them company. And then other people are like, there is no way I would let you come over and do it. I want to do that <laughs> by myself. I'm like okay, whatever oh works my God. for you, but I'll come over if you want. <laughs> you have a
0: standing invitation oh, to come to Aruba and help me clean. Okay. <laughs> oh, my nothing could give oh, me man. more
1: pleasure. I am not exaggerating. <laughs> what is your home like? Is it is it totally clutter free? You know, if you walked around my apartment, you would not say like, oh, this is crazy orderly. It's not like it looks like a Pinterest board with like every and I don't care about things like do all the spice jars match. You know, some people are really into the thing where you take the flour and the sugar and the rice and the oatmeal and you take it out of the packages. So it's all in this like perfect jars. That doesn't matter to me. But what what I really value is I like to know where everything is. I really get annoyed when I have to look for something. So everything in my house, it's like I know where everything is. And if it's not where it's supposed to be, then it's not there because there's nowhere else it would be. Like if it's a hammer or my passport or a stamp or AA batteries or you know my da- my daughter's kindergarten birthday party invitation, Like I know where all that stuff is because I like to know where stuff is. And then I do try, and it takes constant effort, to just get rid of the stuff that we're not using. I'm constantly giving things away, like books that we're not going to read or that we already read and are never going to read or clothes that aren't going to be worn again or kitchen. I found, Just the other day, I found two garlic presses. I'm like, we don't even use one garlic press. Why do we have two garlic presses? It's probably been in there for 10 years, and finally I noticed it. I'm like, what are we doing with these garlic presses? Get <laughs> these out of my kitchen, you know? And so, oh, my God. I have three. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, how does this happen? You know, somebody gives you one as a gift and you, you get to the other one as a freebie. Um, so uh, so I think walking around, you wouldn't think like, oh, this person's really, really clutter free. But I really do make a lot of effort to make sure like if there's a coat in our coat closet, it's because somebody actually does wear that coat or, you know, those shoes, somebody those shoes fit somebody. I got rid of a lot of toys of my daughters. Like as soon as I knew that they'd kind of outgrown them, I really picked like the special things to keep and got rid of, and, that, and that's hard. You know, it's hard to get rid of toys because they're so sentimental.
0: So what about if we, have, if we have that one thing, you know, say we're in the process right now, it's January, I know a lot of people are in the process of decluttering maybe an area or maybe their whole house. Yeah. If, if I have this one thing and it's, because I have several of those, especially in my closet, things that I, every time I do a, a clear out, it comes back up you know, as this like, ooh, I don't know. And then it's sentimental or I used to love it or and somehow it sticks with me. You know, do you have some tips for someone or for when we get, you know, after this podcast, we immediately are going to feel inspired to go clear something out. How can we get rid of objects that are hard to get rid of?
1: So it depends on why that is. So if it's something of a very, like very serious sentimental value, One thing to think about is taking a picture of it. Like, I've taken pictures of a lot of things because I just want the memory. I'm never going to wear the thing again, but I just want the memory, so I take a picture of it. Another thing is, like, a lot of times people will have something of sentimental value, but they'll have many. So, like, maybe you have ten T-shirts that you wore in college. Well, can you pick your one or two favorites? Because then you still feel like, okay, you know, or like, you have five black cardigans. Well, pick the best one or the best two because, because you don't need all of them. And if you are, we we talked earlier about identity. Sometimes it's hard to let go of an identity. Like maybe you had fancy work clothes because you like worked in a law firm and you wore really, you wore these like slick business suits, but you don't do that anymore. It can be hard to let go of those things because it's really relinquishing an identity. Or this comes up with like clothes that used to fit, but that don't fit anymore. And you're like, am I really going to give them away and kind of admit that that's not who I am, even though I don't wear them anymore? Or maybe these were like dresses when I was like young and fabulous and went out until four in the morning all over New York. And like, am I now like a fuddy-duddy and I don't need these clothes anymore? It can be hard <laughs> to relinquish that identity. So sometimes you'd sort of have to sit down and, and, and just really think to yourself like, well, maybe I'll take a picture of this and remind me of this, but it's not my life anymore. And if I needed this again, I would get what worked for me now. Because these are really from the past. But I think you have to really, I think sometimes people are very dismissive. They're like, this is, like just get rid of it all. It's just a bunch of junk. like th- live in the present. It's like, but our past is important. Our memories are precious. And often our possessions really do hold like a piece of us. And so I think you need to pay attention to that and and let yourself kind of, you know maybe sit with something and really hold it and really look at it and really reminisce with it. And some things are just irreplaceable. If you feel like I just literally can't give this up, then okay, fine. You have room in your heart for that and in your home for that. You don't have room for 50 of those things. You know, so decide if this is really the one thing. I had a friend who had a boyfriend who died very early of cancer. It was very, very sad. And they used to go to all these fabulous parties together and she had all these like fancy dresses. And she kept all of them just because of the memory of him. She didn't wear them anymore. And I was like, could you give away all but one so she hmm. gave away all but one, and then like a year later she said, "Well, I realized I had a picture of me and Paul in that when I was wearing that dress, and I realized I just needed the picture." So then she got rid of all of them, hmm. but she wasn't able to do it right away. She had to kind of go through the stages of relinquishment. But she didn't. And I think if pen. you have
0: a lot of that, it's also true. If you have a lot of things that are nostal- nostalgic from one area of your life or one part of your life, if you keep just a few or just one, then that object suddenly holds more value
1: yes no and that's a huge that's a very very important point because that's the thing if you want something to hold memories it's better when it's like the best thing and there's just one or two and they're like easy to manage if you have boxes and boxes of things you'll never look at them if you have five Mm. boxes of your kids toys or like 10 boxes of their schoolwork you'll never look at it because it's just too burdensome and boring and it's all kind of undifferentiated if you pick like, if you have like one file box that's all the most wonderful stuff your kid created in school for ten years, you could actually sit down and look at that. That would be fun. Or if you have like one memorand like m- uh, you know, memory box of all your children's favorite things from their childhood, that's fun to look at. Ten boxes is no fun. No, ten boxes is no fun. That gives me heart. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like oh, you go. know, it's like it gets dusty everything gets broken. A lot of it is kind of meaningless anyway, but if you really curate, you know, choose, select, then the stuff, it it actually serves its function better as holding those memories because it's more distilled.
0: You are listening to The Yoga Girl Podcast, conversations from the heart. We deserve to know what we're putting in our bodies and why. That's why Ritual's team is on a mission to reinvent the vitamin industry. Ritual is one of my favorite multivitamins. I love taking it every morning with breakfast. Not only does it look cool with its beadlet and oil design, but the Ritual team has obsessively researched each nutrient in their visionary women's multivitamin, carefully choosing forms that are absorbable by the body. For example, 40% of women cannot properly utilize the synthetic form of folate, which can be found in many multivitamins. And that's why Ritual does it differently. It's not just about what Ritual puts in their vitamin, it's also about what they have left out. You won't find any mystery additives, synthetic fillers, or any shady extras that can be found in some traditional multivitamins. It's vegan, non-GMO, gluten-free and allergen-free. Ritual uses vegan algal oil instead of fish oil, which comes from the fermentation of microalgae, a patented process that leaves minimal environmental contamination. All of their ingredients and their sources are on their website for anyone to see. That's how much work they have put into it, and that's how sure you can be when you take it. Daily changes can lead to big results, so start small today. Ritual is offering my listeners 10% off of your first 3 months. Try it out, satisfaction guaranteed. Go to ritualcom girl to start your ritual today. That's 10% off during your first 3 months at ritualcom girl so speaking of habits, I mean, it being, you know, just we just had New Year's pass. A lot of people out there are trying to commit to new, healthier habits. New Year, new me, all of this. I know you're a little bit of a, of a habit expert. Mm-hmm. Is that true? Uh, you I, feel like you're really good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what do you think is the, is the biggest obstacles as to why... People can't commit to a habit because I know a couple of weeks from now, most people out there who've set a big resolution, I'm going to work out so and so many times a week, or I'm going to do this or make this change. And then a couple of weeks pass and then, you know, it's out the window. What do you think is the big obstacle as to why it's so hard for us to stick to those habits?
1: You know, I think one big reason is that people don't set themselves up for success for themselves. They're like, oh, this worked great for Rachel. I'll do that. Or this worked great for my sister-in-law. I'll do that. And they don't think about tailoring something to themselves. For instance, when it comes to facing a very strong temptation, some people are abstainers and some people are moderators. So abstainers are people like me where I'm kind of all or nothing. I can have no cookies or I can have... Ten cookies, but I can't have one cookie. I can't have half a dish of ice cream because that's a strong temptation. I can have half a glass of wine because I don't find wine very tempting. But when it comes to a strong temptation, it's easier for me to have none than to have a little bit. Now, then there are moderators. I'm an abstainer, but moderators are people where they do better when they have something a little bit or they have it sometimes. And they... Like, you know, every day or so they'll have a square of fine chocolate and that's all they want. And so they get kind of panicky and rebellious if they're told they can never have something. So they're better off having a little bit. Now, it's very important to know if you're an abstainer or a moderator, because if you're facing a strong temptation, it's going to be much easier for you to do it at, by abstaining or by being moderate, depending on just your nature. And as I can say, as an abstainer, people are constantly telling me I'm doing it wrong. They say, you shouldn't be so strict. You shouldn't take certain foods off the table. You should follow the 80-20 rule. You should give yourself a cheat day. And I'm like, I, it doesn't matter to me what you think I should do. This is what works for me. I quit sugar. I never eat sugar. That's so easy for me. If I was trying to eat a little bit of sugar every day, it would completely consume my mind. So I'm doing it in the way that's right for me. Similarly, something like accountability. For many people, this is my four tendencies framework where I, di- I divide people into upholders, questioners, obligers, and rebels. The biggest group of people is obligers, and obligers need outer accountability. They must have outer accountability. You want to exercise more, join a group, take a class, exercise with a friend who's going to be annoyed if you don't show up, take your dog for a run, volunteer to raise money for a charity by doing a fun run. Whatever it is, you need outer accountability. Other people, like rebels, they don't like accountability. They don't like the feeling that someone's looking over their shoulder. They don't want to be told when and where to show up. They do better when they do what they feel like when they feel like doing it. So it's like, do you need accountability or not? Don't let somebody tell you that you don't. Oh, you should just, if this is important to you, you'll do it on your own. You don't need to just go for a run on your own. You don't need to sign up for a class. No, if you need accountability, get accountability. But if people are telling you you have to have accountability and that makes you crazy, well, then just say, no, that's not right for me. In, if people so want before to take a we quiz, set those goals. Yeah if people want yeah. to take a quiz, there's a, if you go to quiz.gretchenrubin.com, you can find out if you're in a a questioner or bli your rebel and kind of know what that means in terms of habit formation because I think a lot of times people don't understand why they succeed with some things and then struggle with other things and so they're not good about figuring out how to set themselves up for success because they don't really analyze the problem correctly.
0: Right, and then I think I think people are, are really quick to choose a goal or a resolution or here's a change I'm gonna make, but without actually breaking it down yes. into actionable steps. One hundred percent. So okay, right? I wanna I wanna do this. I wanna do more yoga, or yes. I wanna go for a run three times a week, or I want so and so. And then okay, what's that gonna look like yes. in my actual life? Like yes. what day? Where am yes. I going? Who's coming with me? You know, who's taking care of my kids? Like all yes. those steps that actually have to be a part of that too.
1: Yeah, I think but then I find they're so vague it's kind of like yeah, yeah. How, how what does that even mean What would that look like and how would you pull that off? yeah the more specific the better absolutely
0: yes And then do you ever find that the motivation behind wanting to make a change that that affects the outcome of it
1: No I don't I never expect to be motivated by motivation. Motivation I think is almost irrelevant. There are so many people who are so powerfully motivated and they will look you in the eye and they will say, nothing is more important to me than this. And then nothing changes. So it can't Hmm. be their motivation because they have tremendous motivation, but they're not following through. To me, the key thing is what, what means, what makes change actually happen? And your desire for change really, I mean, that was one of the reasons that I wrote my book better than before. I was so puzzled by that because it couldn't be motivation. Because people were obviously highly motivated to do things that they were not doing at all. You know, somebody's right, like, everybody, nothing's more, everybody impor- has, nothing's more yeah. important to me than losing 50 pounds and getting my blood sugar under control. Nothing is more important to me than that. And it's like, okay, but then why is nothing in your life? That, but that's not affecting anything. That's just, it's mm. not happening in the world. So I think it's very distracting to think about motivation and especially, we were talking about the four tendencies, I think especially obligers, they feel like if they whip themselves into a frenzy of motivation and desire, that's how they will act, but it doesn't work and so they become increasingly frustrated But the, and then they also feel like a failure because they feel like, well, I'm not doing it, so I'm letting myself down. Why am I breaking my promises to myself? What's wrong with me? Why can't I grow up? And then, by the way, other tendencies like upholders and questioners or rebels will say very unhelpful things like, you just need to get clear on what you want. (laughs) And and it's like that no, that doesn't work for (laughs) blazers. That works, that works for some of the other tendencies. So I think it's not that helpful to think about. I think it's more I think there are other ways to frame it that make it easier for people to follow through with specific actions that will lead to the outcomes that they desire so much.
0: Do you ever think about because sometimes for me I I can look at the the original motivation behind wanting to make a change, whether that comes from a from a loving place or from a judgmental place. And I feel at least for me that that usually affects a lot in terms of how I h- how I follow through with my own commitments. So say you want to make a, make a lifestyle change for whatever reason, and if that motivation comes from not liking yourself the way you are or hearing that judgmental voice in the back of your head all day telling you, you should be thinner, you should be skinnier, you should be something that you're not. Versus, okay, I want to make a lifestyle change because this is going to make me healthier Mm. or make me live longer or give me more energy, you know, which I feel comes from a more positive place. It's easier to What do you think about that in terms of the deep motivation, in terms of why we want to change in the first place? Well,
1: that's interesting, because in Better Than Before, I talk about the 21 strategies that we can use to make or break habits. And one of the strategies is the strategy of distinctions. And that's understanding how people frame things differently. So like some people are abundance lovers, and some people are simplicity lovers, and some people are abstainers, and some people are moderators. And what you're talking about, I would frame as the difference between yes resolvers and no resolvers. So no resolvers are people like me who feel very comfortable saying no. No. they don't they don't mind saying things like i'm going to quit sugar i'm going to turn off the light at 10:30 i you know i can say no to myself and they don't they're not really bothered by that but then many people sounds like you are one of them where it needs to be a yes it needs to be i'm going to get back in touch with my body and raise my energy or i'm going to i'm going to i'm going to feed my body healthy unprocessed food that feels like a yes now, a lot of times a habit can be formed as a yes or a no, depending on how you frame it. So you can say, I have to turn off the light at 1030, which is saying no. Or I could say, I want to get um, more restful sleep. And that's saying yes. And so it's really about how we frame it for ourselves. And so it can be really mm-hmm. helpful to think about, how can I frame this? Now, my sister Elizabeth is a good example of this, where I'm a no-resolver. I find, I find it easy and almost kind of fun to say no, and, but she needs to say yes to herself And but she also realized like her kryptonite is French fries and she's a type one diabetic and she really wanted to stop eating French fries. And she did. And I said to herself, I said, but Elizabeth, you always have to say yes to yourself. How can you say yes to quitting French fries? And she said, well, now I think I'm free from French fries. Mm. And I thought, oh, that's right. I'm free from French fries. So that's a way to say yes. So I think, I think I like lo- that. this reframing things, using the vocabulary that appeals to us can be very, very powerful. I used to not understand how important it was to find the language that resonates. But I don't think that it's always the case that people have to have one kind of language or one kind of message or one kind of frame. It really comes back to, like, I quit sugar and I love quitting sugar. And some people are like, I don't like that. It sounds like addiction. Or why should you give it? And I'm like, I'm just telling you, I love quitting sugar. Like, I like that Yay. phrase. I am
0: in awe of you. Yeah, yeah. I have a, uh, my best friend, her her dad quit sugar like 20 something years ago and never looked back. Yeah. And I'm just, wow. <laughs> yeah, that to me, is, it seems like an insurmountable thing. You are listening to The Yoga Girl Podcast. Conversations from the heart. It's a new year. Maybe you made some big resolutions to grow your business in 2020, but growing your business means hiring new people and to hire the right people, you need the right tools to help keep your hiring streamlined and efficient. That's where zipperhooter.com slash yoga comes in. ZipRecruiter makes it so easy. You just give them your job posting and they will send it to over 100 of the web's leading job boards with a simple click of your keyboard. If you think that's pretty great, they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and then they invite those people to apply to your job, bringing the right people to you. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. In fact, ZipRecruiter is so effective that 4 out of 5 employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the very first day. Right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address. That's ziprecruiter.com/yoga. 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 ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. What about the, the the connection between, because I feel it's so important that we, at least that it definitely is, I know for everyone listening in the Yoga Girl community, we talk so much about self-love and self-acceptance and being okay the way we are. Mm. And I know a lot of people struggle with that balance between, okay, so if I yeah. love myself the way I am, yes. but still I want to improve, right? Yes. Still I want to change yes. something. How can we connect those two things so that yeah. they make sense? Yes.
1: Now, well, this is something we talk about on the Happier with Gretchen Rubin podcast all the time. And the way I think of it is, is I want to accept myself and expect more for myself. And part of self-love is having aims for yourself and wanting to grow and wanting to push yourself out of your comfort zone. But each of us has to decide for ourselves what is the right way, way to do that and what's the right way for us. But it isn't the case that just to accept yourself means that you just accept yourself as you are and without any expectation of growth or change, but then you don't wanna just expect so much from yourself that you lose track of who you actually are. Um, I saw this with myself because like, I'm not that into music. Like, other people love music. I mean, I like a song here and there. But I kept thinking, oh, maybe if I learned to play an instrument or I listened to new music more or I went to concerts or I read a lot of books about it or I just listened to more music, I'd get more and more into it. And then finally, I'm like, you know what? I got a lot of things I'm interested in. I'm just not that into music. Like, let it go. Accept yourself. This is not. But then there's other things where I really do want to expect more for myself and I want to push myself and I want to learn. I remember that with starting a podcast. I mean, I'm sure you went through it, too. And you're like, this is a whole new thing. Am I going to ask myself, ask this of myself? Am I going to set this as an aim? Am I going to risk failure? I'm going to feel stupid, and I'm not going to know what's going on, and it could be embarrassing, and it could be a big waste of time, and, like, is anybody going to... I mean, there's a million things. And then you're like, but is this something that's right for me? And I'll be like, this is something that's right for me. I want to accept myself, but expect more from it, and accept more for myself.
0: Yeah, like, self-acceptance doesn't mean we surrender to stagnation. Yes. You know, that forever and ever we're just going to be, be where we are. But then I think it's that continuing process of continuing to accept ourselves and and love ourselves when we fail after we've tried new things and, and also knowing that it's a part of, I think definitely should be a part of that self love is that we continue to grow. Well, and I think a a helpful way
1: to frame that also is like this. So in this, the, in better than before, one of the strategies is this strategy of is the idea that it's an English proverb that I love and it's a stumble may prevent a fall. You know, so sometimes a little slip up saves you from a bigger slip up. So I think sometimes, like, if you kind of s- screw things up, or like maybe you wanted to keep a resolution and, and uh, you haven't been perfect, you can say to yourself, "Well, a stumble may prevent a fall." And like, I learned my lesson. I learned my lesson. Like, okay, well, I need to have a plan when I travel for work. I went. I I didn't have a plan. Now I know I need a plan because if I don't have a plan, I'm not going to follow through and I'm going to feel bad about it later. So I think sometimes just saying like, okay, I'm going to have a small failure. That doesn't mean that I failed totally or that I have to have a big failure. A stumble can prevent a fall.
0: I love that. I love that, especially for people... I think like me, who are really hard on themselves. <laughs> I yeah. don't like to fail, smaller or, or big. I, I love that, small stumble, that's beautiful.
1: What we do most days matters more than what we do once in a while, and it kind of works both ways. Because it's like, if, if most days you do yoga, if you don't do yoga every day, that's okay. But it's also the case that, you know, If you almost never do yoga, the fact that you do three hours of yoga one day every six months, eh, that's not going to make such a difference either. What we do most days matters more than what we do once in a while.
0: So how important are forming healthy habits when it comes to the overarching theme of happiness in our lives?
1: Habits are freeing and energizing because they get us out of the draining, difficult business of using our self-control and making decisions. And so the more that if there's something that you want to do regularly in your life, because, you know, it's going to make you happier, healthier, more productive or more creative, the more you can make it into a habit, the more that's just going to be an automatic pilot. And it's just going to it's just going to happen automatically. And it's not going to take a lot out of you. I'm sure you see this with like yoga. Some people are like, should I go today? Maybe not today. Should I go in the morning? No, I should go in the afternoon. Oh, but I, I went yesterday. Maybe I should have today off. Oh, I'm going to go tomorrow. Maybe I should have today off. Should I go? Maybe tomorrow. I'll have more energy tomorrow. It'll be better <laughs> if I start on a Monday. Oh, I'll wait till after my birthday. <laughs> it's like you've had this whole thought. You've drained yourself. And you never even went to yoga in the first place. If you're like, oh, it's Tuesday. I go to my 8 a.m. yoga class. It's like I'm up. I'm out the door. I got my mat under my arm. I'm there. Hey. Fine, because it's a habit. It's just like, I don't have to think about it. I don't have to decide. I don't have to use my willpower. It's just a habit. So if there are things that, you even, you know, we brush our teeth on habits. Do you decide every day, is today a day I'm going to brush my teeth or I'm going to give myself a break? <laughs> no. The more you do something regularly, the more easily it just comes. And then often with many habits, like they grow on themselves. The more you do them, the more you gain from them, and the more they sort of like slip into your life. One really helpful tip for people is if you are trying to form a new habit, a great time to form a habit is whenever you're going through a transition, if you're moving, especially if you're moving, like when they look at people who successfully quit smoking, many of them did it when they moved from one place to another, a new job, a new relationship. You've got a new puppy and your bus route changed. Anytime that you go through a transition, all your old habits are wiped away, and so it's much easier for a new habit to form. So you want to do the right habit right away. So let's say you start a new job. You might think to yourself, you know what, I don't want to exercise for the first couple weeks because I'm going to be really tired starting a new job. I want to settle into my routine. Then I'll start going. No, don't do that. Start the way you want to continue. Because if, if you get up and you go a half an hour early every day because you're going to go to this class before work... If you do that the first couple of weeks, that'll just feel like your regular day. It'll it'll solidify as a habit. It'll be much easier to keep up because it's already set in the concrete of what the habit of that new job looks like. So anytime you go through a transition, take advantage of it. Because sometimes we kind of miss the window because we don't go through transitions that much, but they're a wonderful opportunity. You know, it's sort of like, let's say there's, let's say you're, you, you're always, you're like a, crazy for cupcakes and you move to, you, you change to a new job. You're like, I'm not going to walk around and figure out the best bakery to buy cupcakes. I'm just not going to find that out. And so then I'm not thinking about the cupcakes because I don't know <laughs> that there's a great cupcake bakery five blocks from here because I never went to look for it. So I don't, you know, I'm, now I'm not in the habit of walking by there because I'm in this new job.
0: And is there such a, is there a certain amount of days, you know how they say it's Mm. 21 days to form a new habit? Is that true? No.
1: No. No, it's not. No, no. Because like some habits will, uh, you know, you stop and have a donut three times in three mornings in a row and you will find that that habit is completely formed and almost impossible to break. And then there are other (laughs) habits where you could do it for months and months and it would really, it would, it would really, you know, you would really still need to safeguard that habit. It would be hard. And the thing about a lot of habits, too, is that it's easier for habits to set when they are always the same, like when they happen in exactly the same way every day. Like, I get up and walk my dog every morning. That's a habit because it's literally, like, the second thing that I, I like, I get up, put my contacts in, brush my teeth, and take my dog out. But something like exercising, it kind of has to move around depending on my day. Like, do I have an early morning meeting? Do I, am I traveling? Like, I'm in the habit of exercising, but it's not as regular because it has to have more flexibility. So that makes a habit a little trickier. Or something like eating. It's like, well, every time you eat in a restaurant, it's kind of a different set of challenges. And so for some people, depending on what kind of habits they're trying to form, that can be easier or harder depending on how much kind of customization there has to be depending on a certain kind of circumstance. The more consistent a habit is, the easier it is to form, but some complex habits, they can only be made so consistent, they can't be made totally consistent the way wearing a seatbelt or brushing your teeth is.
0: Right. I find this so so fascinating because I was I was looking back at the the really healthy habits that I have in my own life that are just easy, like yoga is one of them. There was definitely a time in my life where I didn't have yoga, you know, where yoga wasn't a part of my yeah. routine, wasn't a habit. And, and I was trying to distinguish what makes yoga so different from running, for instance, I would yeah. love to be a runner. Like I, I pick up running a couple times a year, my husband's a runner, I like the idea of it, it feels freeing, there's just something about it that pulls at me all the time. And then inevitably, a couple of weeks later, I, I fail, I lose it. And then I, you know, six months later, I haven't gone for a run what is that differentiator between right. why some things are so easy for us and others aren't have you had any any answers yeah. to that
1: well uh, here's my question when you're doing yoga are you doing it with other people or are you doing it by yourself no
0: I'm, I'm alone
1: you're alone interesting
0: yeah even though I'm an obliger taking your test yeah for me yoga is it's it's kind of the one thing where I'm yeah it's just me
1: that's interesting is there has there ever been any time in your life when you did run successfully
0: successfully not really no i go through phases of it and then i i, I don't know why suddenly it's fun and easy maybe because it's like I, I get into it with my husband and he's going and he helps motivate me but then something happens and i and i stop and then you know and then it gets hard again three months later i haven't had a single run and it's like oh <laughs> starting and why at the bottom do you,
1: why do you want to run <laughs> i love the idea of how freeing it feels but you love the you, – you've said that a couple times. You like the idea of it. That doesn't – that right. sounds like the fantasy self. Is it? Maybe. It is. It's just, just this idea
0: I have of people who run that they have this, I don't know, this simple like me and nature, you know? And mm. I'm, I don't know. Maybe it's just the person that I'm not kind of that person, but I want to be, and that's why I keep trying.
1: <laughs> I what don't about know. walking in nature?
0: Yeah, that's that's
1: – that I can do. I mean, I walk my dogs every day but there's something about that kind of, I don't know. But I think it just sounds like you like the idea of it. Like, I like the idea of going fly fishing because I'm like, what's not to like about fly fishing? It's peaceful. There's like a whole culture around it. It takes you to beautiful places. You meet interesting people. But I have no interest in fly fishing whatsoever. I like the (laughs) idea of fly fishing because everything about it appeals to me except the actual doing of it. So it sounds to me like you don't actually even like running. No, I don't like running at all. (laughs) yeah I've shared this on my show so many times
0: but then I start back up again and people go hey what's what's wrong with you what are you what are you you doing so maybe some some longings or some goals that we have we should evaluate a little more before we kill ourselves trying to commit to something that we're just not is that true also that some habits or some goals we have we should just put aside like should I stop trying to run
1: yeah. I mean, because I think it's like, do you actually want it? Because you don't actually say that you want to run. You just say you like the idea of running. That was the way you framed <laughs> it both times. So that's different, I think. But also, I think a lot of times people have red herring habits where people around them are telling them they should have a habit. So then they will say they want the habit, but they don't actually want the habit. Like, I remember talking to a guy and he's like, oh, yeah, my, you know, my wife and my kids keep telling me to exercise. And my doctor keeps saying how great it would be for me. And I'm totally going to start exercising. And I'm like, you're totally not going to start exercising because you haven't... You You'd, you're just saying that to get everybody off your back. Hmm. Oh my god. Yes. 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 You know, I think a lot of us fall in that category. <laughs> but but and then, but I think there is also like things sound so nice, but that's not the same thing as doing it. But it's also interesting, I mean back to your husband and stuff. He's interesting cuz a lot of people love to buy the stuff, but then they never actually do it. But you said he would actually do something for a year or so. See, so he's actually doing it. But I had a roommate one time where She'd buy everything to go rollerblading. She'd buy the outfit. She'd buy the knee pads. She'd buy the rollerblades. And then she would never need rollerblades. And then she went, got into yoga, and she bought the yoga clothes, and she bought the yoga mat, and never <laughs> did yoga. I mean, I was, she just did this over and over. She just liked buying the stuff. I'm like, you just have no like intention of doing it.
0: <laughs> no, and I tell my husband that a lot. I said, before we get all this stuff, start doing the yes, thing. Yes, you know, yes, yes. Yeah. So he, every, when I was like my last running episode last year, yeah, uh, I, I went for one run and then I came home and he'd gotten me a new like heart rate, like yeah. band for right. my waist and yeah. a, a clip for my shoe, uh, some new app. Yeah. And I was like, dude, I've done this yeah. one time. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and then I feel pressured. So then I'm yeah. like, no, 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 no. I, I don't want to do it anymore.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, the nice thing about running is that you can, if you feel like it, you can just go do it. Just don't beat yourself up if it doesn't, if it's not consistent. It might just be the kind of thing that it's certain, like in certain moods, you feel like doing it. Awesome. Just, I mean, it's only good, you know, go for a run if you, you feel run, like it. right? No, you know, I ran for years. And then I just like one day I was like, I am so sick of this. I'm never going to do this again. So now I go for like oh. long walks in Central Park and I do high intensity weight training. Okay. Well, that's good too. And yoga.
0: So, yeah. uh, and yoga. And oh, and amazing. Yoda just to to kind of swear back a little bit or get a um, get back to happiness a little bit with all the things and i know this is a very general question but with sort of the the state of the world and mm-hmm. and where we're at you know environmentally politically you know all, all across the world how important is it that we form healthy habits and that we focus on our own happiness considering the state of the world we live in right now. I got a question on social media saying, whenever I focus too much on my own happiness, I end up feeling guilty. Yeah. Have you find, found a connection between caring for the world and our own happiness that it goes hand in hand?
1: Absolutely. And many people like um, the person who you saw on social media, there's kind of a bad reputation for happiness. And people feel like, well, if I'm if I'm worried about my own happiness, then I'm either complacent or smug or, or lazy and, and some people think like, well, it, with everything that's going on in the world today, is it even morally appropriate to seek to be personally happier? But what's interesting is the research shows, and I think common experience confirms this, that happy people are more interested in the problems of the world. And they're more interested in the problems of the people around them. And they're more effective when they try to do something. They make make, make better team members and better leaders. They make better friends and family members and coworkers. They give away more money. They're more likely to vote. They have healthier habits. When we are unhappy, we tend to become isolated and defensive and preoccupied with our own problems. And when we're happy, we turn outward and think about the problems of other people and the problems of the world. So sometimes people are like, well if you just think about sit around and think about how to be happy, you're just going to drink piña coladas on the beach all day. And I'm like, that's not what happens. People start worrying about <laughs> distributing malaria nets. You know, that's where their mind goes. And so really, being happy yourself really is something that gives you the emotional wherewithal that then allows you to go out into the world. And I think that this is particularly important when you feel like there is a lot of pain in the world. Because I think if you're unhappy, sometimes you're like, I can't bear it. I can't read it. I can't look at it. I can't think about it. So I'm going to turn away from it. Or for some people, they get drawn to it and they can't escape it and they get whipped into this emotional frenzy because they can't tear themselves away from cable news or from Twitter or whatever. And they're in this state of agitation and yet that 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 agitation does not lead to productive action. So what you want to do is look at the world and be like, oh my gosh, this this we, we can't put up with this. And then you want to do something in your life to, to bring a change, whether that's as small as like, donating to a cause or voting in an election or whatever, or, you know, starting a whole huge organization or donating a huge amount of your time or volunteering or whatever it might be, you want your, you want that to translate into action. And really, when people are happier, they're more able to do that. And they're more effective when they do that that kind of, it, 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 you really don't serve the world better kind of by draining yourself or neglecting yourself. you know. And so in a way, if, if, if it is selfish to want to be happier, we should be selfish if only for selfless reasons because that's what's really going to help us be active participants and constructive participants in the world. Yes. And if you have one, one piece of advice
0: or if you can leave our, our mm. listeners with, one piece of advice to really make 2020 a happier year, mm. what would that be?
1: You know, ancient philosophers and contemporary scientists agree that if you had to pick one thing for happiness, probably that thing is relationships. So I would say to all your listeners, if, there's one, if you could think about either how to deepen relationships or broaden relationships, something in 2020, that is probably gonna make you happier. Whether you're going to have a standing date with your three best friends to have lunch once a month so that you know that you see them, or you're going to start a book group so that you make more friends, or you're going to commit to having a reunion once a year with some people who are spread out who need to like get together, or you're just going to send a funny picture every day to the members of your family just so that you have this little cute quick touch point just so that you all feel more connected. Whatever it is, if you can pick a concrete, manageable thing that's going to either deepen existing relationships or broaden relationships, that is probably something that by the end of 2020 really is going to boost your happiness. Oh, I feel
0: so motivated to go really meet one of my goals for this year, which is to have a standing date night with my husband every single week, no matter what. There you go. And that's I, fantastic. Yeah, it is. And I'm going to go clean up my kitchen. <laughs> as as
1: I wish I could come stuff. help you. I love doing that.
0: Oh, thank you so much for coming on the show, Gretchen. I appreciate you so 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 much. Thank you. Thank you. It was
1: so fun to talk to you.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode and a special thanks to our guest Gretchen Rubin. If you enjoyed this show, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of the Yoga Girl podcast, Conversations from the Heart. You can find all of them on yogagirl.com, on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere you normally get your shows. Don't forget to leave a review while you are there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. And of course, thanks to my sponsors, Agent R Block, Ritual, and Zippercooter. Please support them the way they support this podcast.